You see, our assurance that we will be caught up is not only based on Christ's work, but also on his word. We have history and we have Holy Scripture. We have the resurrection and we have the revelation of God. Everything is revealed already in Scripture. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three and the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Israel's Rebirth and the Rapture. Pastor Carl will illustrate the program of the return of Jesus Christ as we look at the rapture of the living and the reunion of the saints. Please join us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we continue. God gives pictures of Messiah right from the start. Adam and Eve rebel against God, and they try to basically adapt fig leaf religion by the works of their hands. They try to cover their own shame with fig leaves. And the first death in all the universe takes place where God kills multiple animals because he clothes them with skins, plural. And he's underscoring the truth. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Abel, he comes with a blood sacrifice. Cain comes by his hard work. All these liberal scholars and some evangelicals have foolishly adopted it, said, oh, Cain brought his second best. Abel brought his very best. No, the difference was on the nature of the sacrifice. One came on the basis of blood. By faith, the scripture says he offered a better sacrifice. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God and God had revealed through Adam and Eve even on the day when they fell into his sons that without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness. Again in the scriptures, the death, burial, and resurrection are found the Passover lamb. Our Jewish friends just celebrated Passover as we did as well. They a little differently than us but the blood was placed on the doorpost and the lintel and when the Judgment came through the land, God saw the blood, he passed over. In the sacrificial system, there are rivers of blood. On the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, the high priest would put blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And when God looked down at the items in the box, the Ten Commandments, which they rejected, the leadership of God is seen in the budded rod, the provision of God is seen in the jar of manna. All he saw was the blood that covered over their sin in Psalm 22 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 2, God prophesies the death and resurrection of Christ. Isaiah 53, a passage Jewish people don't read. You know, they have a reading program where they read through the whole Torah, the first five books, and then selected passages. Isaiah 53 has never been in their reading program. Why not? Because Jesus is all over it. Abraham there on top of Mount Moriah offering Isaac. What we just studied in our 10-week series on Jonah, Jonah being captured in the belly of the great fish. This is what Paul is speaking about. The death, the burial, and the resurrection are all according to the Scripture, either by direct prophecy or by type or by illustration. It's all according to the Scriptures. His point in 1 Corinthians 15 is that just as Jesus was prophesied literally to come out of the grave, so will you literally come out of the grave. Was Jesus literally dead? Yes. Was he literally buried? Yes. Was he literally resurrected, contrary to some preachers in our community? 
Yes, he was. He physically, literally came out of the grave just as he will physically, literally come to judge the living and the dead. And so when he dispels their questions about the resurrection, he basically says, if you want to know what the harvest is like, just look at the first fruit. It all starts there with Jesus' resurrection. So first, the grounds of our hope are on the work of Christ. Secondly, he also grounds our hope on the word of Christ, on the word of Christ. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. You see, our assurance that we will be caught up is not only based on Christ's work, but also on his word. We have history and we have Holy Scripture. We have the resurrection and we have the revelation of God. Everything is revealed already in Scripture. I've told you already that one-third of the Scripture is prophetic in nature. And yet, sadly today, prophecy is rarely taught. The very thing the seminary I went to that was known for, men are no longer being equipped for, and they don't know any better because that's all they know. But the Scripture and its prophetic nature is something that is to be taught. So here's Paul, and he's not speaking now of some Old Testament prophecy. He's speaking of a literal word from the Lord, of course. He missed that three-year ring that the disciples had, but he had a three-year exposure with the Lord out in the desert. Now, whether Jesus told him there or however it was communicated to him, he said, I'm saying to you what I'm saying to you by the word of the Lord. He could even be appealing to their knowledge of what God would write through John. For Jesus plainly said it in John chapter 14. So there's this program at his, uh, there's this promise that he gives. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places, many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, here's the word of the Lord. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you will be as well. Hey, listen, he is preparing a place for us. It's called the Father's house. It's called the New Jerusalem. You know, in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. He spent 2,000 years on this place. It's got to be magnificent. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. It's called in the book of Titus, the blessed hope. And it's grounded on the work of Christ and it's grounded on the word of Christ. Now, secondly, beyond the promise of his return, I want us to think for a moment about the program at his return. The program at his return. And so now by divine revelation, Paul expands on what Jesus taught in John chapter 14. Look at verse 15 of 1 Thessalonians 4. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He's answering their question. What is the status of our loved ones who have died before Jesus comes back? When will our loved ones be raised? And his answer is the dead in Christ will be the very first to go up. That we who are alive will not have preference or priority over those who are dead in Christ. And so those who have already gone home, they're the first to come out of the grave. Now remember, only three months had gone by since Paul had been in Thessalonica when he writes this letter. And some of them had already died, maybe by sickness, maybe by persecution. It's a reminder to me of how fragile life is. None of us plan to die this year, but we could. 
We're all one heartbeat away from eternity. So whether it was by persecution or old age or poor health, we don't know, but many had already died. And so he wants to underscore two truths. First in verse 16. First the program, that his program includes the resurrection of the dead. So Paul proceeds to unfold the specifics of his program, and he gives three truths. First, his program includes the resurrection of the dead. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. No, I love that, the Lord himself. In fact, the pronoun here, himself, is in the emphatic position in my Greek New Testament. You could literally re- render it, himself. The Lord will descend. In other words, he's not sending some emissary to get you. Jesus himself is coming back for us. That's why the angel there on the Mount of Olives could say, this Jesus who has been taken to you, taken from you into heaven, will come in just the same way that you watched him go into heaven. The Lord himself, that's whom we are waiting for. And notice there are three sounds that describe this program. Three sounds that accompany his return. First, in verse 16, a shout with the voice of the archangel. Now, there are different words for shout in Koine Greek. There's the kind of shout that you might give at an athletic competition. But the word that's used here is used outside of the New Testament of a captain who shouts to his mates on boards to to row or to a military officer giving a command. It's the word that refers to an authoritative cry. You could illustrate it with what Jesus did at the grave of Lazarus. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And of course, it's well been said, had he left Lazarus' names off and just said, come forth, all the graves would have opened. But there's coming a time when the graves of the believers will be open and God will give his authoritative shout. And of course, Lazarus' raising is very different from ours. There are eight people specifically in Scripture who are raised to life like Lazarus only to die again. Lazarus got old or sick again. The Scripture doesn't record it, but he's buried in some tomb over there in Israel. He was raised in his natural body only to die again. Jesus was the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. He is the first fruits, and we will have a body like his. He will say, come forth. You say, well, what if my loved one died a horrible death? Suppose there's no body left. Suppose he's disintegrated into absolutely nothing. Suppose he died in some crematorium. It's certainly not a problem for God Almighty. I love the true story of Roger Williams. He was the founder of Rhode Island, and he was a great Baptist preacher. When they buried Roger Williams there in Prospect Park in Providence, Rhode Island. The the caretaker thought it would be appropriate to put a nice tree next to his grave, and so he put an apple tree there. Well, some years later, the Baptist decided to exhume his body to give him a more prominent place, being the famous Baptist that he was, and when they went to exhume his body, they discovered that the root of the apple tree had gone right into into the coffin, into his head, and made its way down and split through his legs. And the tree absorbed the chemicals of the body of Roger Williams, and of course, apples grew, and people ate the apples. (laughs) You say, well, where is the body of Roger Williams? Certainly not a problem for God Almighty. 
it is not a problem. God who wove you together in your mother's womb will weave your resurrection body back together. The grave will yield your body, whether it's dust, whether it's disintegrated. And yes, believers always bury their loved ones. Some believers in ignorance cremate them. But the biblical pattern is to bury your loved ones. If you've cremated your loved one or you want to cremate your loved one, well, I do your funeral, I'll do whatever you want. But if you're asking me, what does the Bible teach by model, by illustration, it's not cremation. Cremation came on the scene in 1876. It was unthinkable for a Bible-believing Christian to cremate their loved ones. And it was largely put into the forefront of the American culture through the Unitarians who denied the triunity of God. They denied the deity of Christ. They denied the authority of Scripture. At least that's where Unitarians were at that point in history. And so to raise their little ugly fists in the face of God because they denied the bodily resurrection, they cremated their loved ones and said, let's see what your God can do with this. So Christians repelled the thought. But in Scripture, the model is burial, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15, like planting a seed in the ground with an expectation that life will come. It's a testimony. And so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ananias, Sapphira, John the Baptist, the saints in Corinth were all buried. And when God himself does a funeral, he, the Lord, buried Moses. Look, your funeral will have a lot more punch. I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of funerals. And your funeral will have so much more punch if there's a body there. You say it's expensive. You'll spend your money on what's important. And this is important. It may be your last chance to win some of your friends and loved ones into the kingdom. And so there's the shout. Notice, too, there's the voice of the archangel. You say, why would the archangel even speak? Well, if you remember, the Bible reveals since the time of the Garden of Eden, there's this invisible angelic battle that is going on. And there's this fallen angel by the name of Satan, the chief of all the demonic forces who have been trying to blind the minds of the unbelievings to take them away into the place where he will spend eternity. But angels who, the writer of the Hebrews says, comes to render service for those who will inherit salvation, They serve us to this day. They're here today. You don't see them, but they watch and look at us, Paul says, at every worship service. The audience here is actually a lot bigger than you realize. But the archangel, there's only one recorded in Scripture. His name is Michael. And how appropriate that God would involve the archangel because the archangel will basically say, Satan, you're defeated. Make way for the children of the promise. And the third sound we hear, notice, is the trumpet of God. Now, there are many trumpets in Scripture, and we'll study the last trumpet later on in this series, God willing. But God uses trumpets for a new program, sometimes to signal the people for assembly, to end a war, to call them to worship. And putting this verse together with the revelation, God is going to blow the trumpet. He's going to raise up his army, the living and the dead, and call them to worship as you see in the revelation. The commander-in-chief is coming with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And then at that moment, the dead in Christ will rise first. There's their answer. There'll be no advantage to being alive when Jesus comes back. 
And so to have sorrow over this is an unjustified sorrow. And then notice the very first word of verse 17. It is the word then. In the original, as in English, this is a chronological adverb. He is giving us the second step in God's program here. So his program includes the resurrection of the dead, but it also includes the rapture of the living. The rapture of the living. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. This is what we call the rapture, the next great event on God's prophetic calendar. Now let me warn you, if you haven't heard it already, sooner or later, you'll meet some Christian who will tell you, well, the rapture is not a biblical doctrine. They might even be so bold to take out a concordance and say, show me where the word rapture appears in the Bible. And it is true, the word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. And the word Bible doesn't appear in the Bible. <laughs> and the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible or Sunday. But we believe in 66 inspired books. We believe that there's one God who lives in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. We believe the Lord's day is the day in which we are to worship. And so while technically it's not found in the English Bible, it is found in the Latin Vulgate Bible. Here's verse 17 out of the Latin Vulgate. I underline for you the Latin word rapimor, which is from the verb rapturo, and so we get our word rapture. Now, you can call it whatever you want, but every true Christian, unless they're just ignorant, unless they want to tear 1 Thessalonians 4 out of the Bible, believe that the church is going to be caught up, that God is going to raise the living and the dead believers into new resurrected bodies suited for heaven. It is going to happen. You can call it the harpazo if you want. That's what the word means, to be caught up. So the concept of the rapture, like the concept of the Trinity, and the concept of original sin, and the concept of Sunday, and so forth, is clearly, plainly taught in Scripture. And so the rapture will happen. We will see later in this schedule the judgment of the just when God evaluates true believers. They're in heaven, not to see if they go there. We're saved by grace, but God will evaluate your service. And then he will have us to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, some people think that the church will go through the great tribulation. We'll see that's impossible. And if you were here last week, I reminded you that Jesus did not die as a martyr for some cause. He didn't die as some moral example. When he pulled himself up on those nails to get the fullest breath, and he shouted, it is finished. Indeed, he had paid in full our sin debt. Certainly, the church will meet the wrath of Satan as we have through the centuries. Certainly, the church will meet the wrath of man as we have through the centuries. But the tribulation period is more than both of those. It is the wrath of God Almighty. And God doesn't leave his bride here for the great tribulation only to get beat up black and blue and then to invite her to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look, the picture doesn't even work. And so in the Greek, harpazo, it means to snatch up to catch away in some translations, to carry off. If you were to give a modern paraphrase, you might just say, zap, suddenly. Philip, the word is used of him. When Philip, after he had preached to the Ethiopian eunuch, when they came up out of the water, because he brought him down into the water to baptize him, not to the edge to sprinkle him, they came up out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord snatched, there it is, harpazo. Snatch Philip away, and in a second he's gone, and he shows up in another town called Azotus. You might want to put 1 Corinthians 
15, 51 to 53, next to verse 17. These are familiar words. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we'll not all die, but we'll all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the, tr- at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Not all Christians are going to die. There will be a generation of Christians that will be alive here for the rapture of the church. And the scripture doesn't say in the blinking of an eye, but in the twinkling of an eye, which is incredibly fast. Only born-again Christians will be caught up. Only those who become partakers of the divine nature. Think of it this way. Suppose this platform were a big garden. And I planted in my garden copper and brass and zinc and chromium and iron. I buried it all into the ground. Then suppose we get one of those big car magnets. When we were kids, we'd get on our bicycle and we'd ride all the way up to the dump. It was about six miles away. It was a great bike hike, as we called them back then. I don't think kids get much exercise anymore, do they? It's all in the thumbs, I suppose. In either case, we'd go there and we'd love to see these magnificent magnets coming over a car and whoosh, the car would go up into that magnet and then they'd put it in the proper place. Well, if you could take one of those big electromagnets and put it all across this platform with all those metals buried, the only thing that would come out of the ground would be the iron. Why? It would leap out of the dirt because it has the same nature as the magnet. The rest would be left behind. And unless you become a partaker of the divine nature, sealed by the Spirit of God for the day of redemption, you will be left behind. His program includes the resurrection of the dead, the rapture of the living third, and finally, his program includes the reunion of all the saints. Once again, in verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. You're going to be together with them. The living ones and the dead ones are going to meet the Lord in the air. If you have a father or a mother, a grandfather, a grandmother, maybe a son, a daughter, maybe a little baby you miscarried, maybe even a baby you aborted, maybe a a child taken before the time of accountability, all of a sudden they'll be caught up and we will meet each other in the air. Now, there are two dimensions to this reunion. First, we will meet those who went on before us, and yes, we will recognize them, as we already underscored that Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration were fully recognizable. But there'll also be a reunion with the Lord Jesus. We will see him. Are you ready to meet him? If you are a Christian, would you shrink back in shame? Now, there's those that God will be ashamed of. Those are unbelievers who are unwilling to confess him before man even. But then there are believers who will shrink back in shame, different group, when they see their Lord face to face and they think, why did I waste my life on such vain and stupid things? And if you are listening to me somewhere in the world today and you do not have the divine nature implanted in your heart through a birth from above, 
you're not ready for heaven. You say, I want to go to heaven. I think I might. The scripture says knowing and thinking and hoping is not enough. You must know that you have eternal life. And God did everything required for it to happen for you. Death is certain. You have an appointment with death. It is appointed for a man to die once. But are you ready? And if you will come in humility and faith and submit to his lordship, he will instantly save you. He will clothe you in Christ's righteousness. You'll be considered in Christ. And he'll plant God the Spirit in you who will bear witness as you grow with your spirit that you've become a child of God. And when you die or Jesus comes back, in the twinkling of an eye, in a nanosecond, you'll be with Jesus. You must choose. Will you go up with Christ? Or will you be left for Antichrist? Now, Father, I thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Help someone here today who's unsure of their salvation. Help them to know that Jesus didn't die for some or most of their sin, but all of it. And he proved his sinlessness and his ability to be their substitute when you raised him from the dead. Thank you for your promise that whoever will call on his name will be saved. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that it is a trustworthy statement and it deserves our full acceptance that you came into the world to save sinners. Help someone, Father, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Save me on the merits of your cross and your death and resurrection. Forgive me and give me this new life. And give me the courage to openly, publicly, without any hesitation to confess you before men. Now, Father, I recognize there are many here who have crossed that line, some of whom need a church home. If you would put in their hearts today, and it would please you for them to be a part of this fellowship, then we pray you'd move on them. But there are some who have been saved and baptized or members of a New Testament church but they're lackadaisical. They are not spiritually and prophetically awake to what is happening right before our eyes. And so they are investing their life in vain things that have little significance for eternity. Please reroute our course. Thank you that this life and even the things in this life you've given us to enjoy But please help us never to put those things as priorities over the things of the kingdom. And we ask it, Lord Jesus, in your name. There is no friendship that is more important than friendship with God. It is a relationship with eternal consequences. And the greatest act of care and concern you can ever show someone is to introduce them to Jesus. If you have never shared Christ with anyone, or if it has been a while since you have done so, we would like to help. Dr. Brogy has written a booklet that highlights five principles that are fundamental to having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you like to know God as your friend begins with a number of diagnostic questions and concludes with a presentation of the gospel message. These booklets will really simplify sharing your faith and we will send you 50 of these booklets as our thanks for a gift of any amount to search the scriptures. Call us today at 
888-888-7478 and ask for the Would You Like to Know God is Your Friend gift pack. Also, if you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program GPS-001. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.